Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 43rd episode of Slime Time, an official Dragon Quest Dragon's Den podcast. This is Liam Land. And this is the delightful, the dangerous, and always delicious Dwayne. <laughs> that changes every time. What are we uh, getting ourselves into here? <laughs> Very exciting episode we have planned for you today. We have two guests who not only founded the translation company Alt Japan, have written numerous books on the worldwide influence of Japanese culture, but also worked on the localizations for Dragon Warrior 7 for PlayStation and Dragon Quest 8 for PlayStation 2. It is an honor to welcome to the podcast Hiroko Yoda and Matt Alt. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are uh, we're going to get into some of the questions surrounding the Dragon Quest localizations, but first, let's get to know our guests. Um, so, how did it all start for you? What what first sparked your interest in getting into game translation? Well, you know, I had always been you know I'm not I'm not what you consider a hardcore gamer, but I grew up in the '80s. You know, when the NES first came out, and I was I was there for the console wars. Uh, this makes me sound like a veteran of some kind of <laughs> conflict. <laughs> But, uh, you know, so I, I played a lot of games growing up as a kid and I had an interest in Japan. So the idea of working in basically if you were growing up in the 80s or 90s and you were a console gamer, the idea of wanting to work in the field of console games meant you'd be working with Japanese games for the most part. I mean, of, of course, there were, you know, American and foreign and European companies making games for it. But, you know, I'd always thought it was kind of a cool idea, but it didn't actually come to fruition until way after I'd graduated from college and was working as a translator for the government, actually, at the Patent and Trademark Office. And an old friend of mine is like, who was a translator in Japan at the time, is like, my hands are full. I can't deal with this. Do you want to take this project? And it turned out to be Silhouette Mirage, uh, the video game Silhouette Mirage for the Saturn, I believe. And it was being localized by working designs. And so he passed us off to working designs. And I quickly realized I was working full time for the government. And also it was really quite difficult to localize back then because we just got these they, they would just dump the game code on you and you'd have to hunt through for the text and it was really tough to tell what was going on and no visual actually. no visual at all and uh so i was like god hiroko who we were dating at the time hiroko was getting a grad degree yeah i was student i was busy to study yes you know, did all the research <laughs> paper and everything at the graduate program at american, one, american, at american university. university and then one day it's like hiroko i'm <laughs> I can do this. Let's just do it. And then the, we went to the pizza place. Yeah, we were we were actually <laughs> this is so early on. So this has to be like 97, 8-ish. That was like a couple of years after the internet is Yeah, I mean basically yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So That's so true. That. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I definitely remember what Hiroko was talking. Like I would print out yeah. the code on like that sprocket paper, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like the oh, yeah, matrix. Matrix. or something like that. And like just we take these stacks of paper to the local pizza place because none of us had like a home office at the time. And while we eat pizza and like drink beer, we would mark up the document with like yeah, felt. Just try to yeah, mark up the Japanese. Well, we would write the translation in the margins of that paper, and then I would go back in and enter them into the, like, we were working like in text editor. It wasn't yeah. even, it, it wasn't even that. We wow. just, yeah, like working designs would just dump the, the and I, this is just how it worked back then. This isn't any kind of like slight on working designs. They would just dump the, the code on you, and you'd have to go in and actually inject the 
translations into the code where it was and then send it back to them. Oh, man. Yeah. And that then that, that led to Working Designs hiring us to do Lunar, yeah, Lunar. Silver Star yeah. Story, yeah. which Lunar. was... Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was a Lunar, like, I, I loved Lunar on the, I don't know, what, what was the first incarnation of that that came out in America? It wasn't, was it? Sega CD, maybe? Yeah, yeah, it was Sega CD. Yeah, so I had played that. I remember my sister and I played it and really loved it uh, as as teenagers. And so it was really like, to me, that was like, wow, I'm getting to work on Lunar. But Hiroko wasn't really like a hardcore gamer or anything. No, actually, my parents, you know, <laughs> my parents had been anti-game in manga and so i wasn't really interested in much and yeah. so uh so actually so it worked out so well uh, between us because you know if you if we pick up if we were just diehard gamer that probably just unbalanced yeah. or not to you know be interested in it at all you know on the other hand but that's that that wouldn't yeah. work out either so it was actually a good thing and in east west and yeah, Man no. And we, woman. Well, we realized we realized through those we realized through those projects that we like worked really well together as a team, and you know we compensated for each other's weaknesses. You know, Hiroko is obviously fluent in Japanese. Um, I'm, and then also that time because of the internet started, you know, became available in the public. So the concept of the um, home office. Yes, was cutting edge, cutting yeah. edge, and then it's like, hey, well, maybe for we remote can, work. Yeah, remote work, mm -hmm. and we, we can do that because before the internet was available, it just no way to yeah, do. Yeah, you that. had to be in house. In house. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. So it was kind of a cutting edge thing. Yeah, and so basically, it was a lowering the hurdle to 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 run the company, and then uh, even though yeah. I was a full time student, and then you were full time worker for government, um, <laughs> and then, and then it, it, yeah, so basically, um, we, so basically we worked really hard yeah it was at nights and weekends it was pretty rough for a while there because we had to make deadlines and things mm -hmm. but yeah that's how so that's how it that's started, how I started it. and yeah, then so, yeah and then um but i knew that um i knew that uh you know he, if matt wanted to get a job a japanese company at the time he i knew he would probably get the job but then you know i knew that would be the same thing you know you you know he was working for government and it just the government it turned into another company and it, i knew he wasn't interested in that so we worked hard <laughs> that was really hard we worked hard mm -hmm. and then build up the clients to uh to, to, you know so that we could support uh, so that they could support us support both of us yeah full time to full time and um and then we and then we actually uh the, the founder company in america yeah all japan inc but then we, we realized that all the clients are basically tokyo and then we were in washington dc and then we have you know, the time difference and yeah, yeah and then we of course it's a business world we have we have to compete and um so we just took clothes down to all japan inc Moved to Tokyo, and they did. Well, there was a there was a tipping point. There was a tipping point in there where, like, we were realized we'd have to turn down really lucrative work from game clients or game. At the time, we were mainly working through agencies, yeah, translation agencies. We'd have to turn down really lucrative projects if I didn't stop working for the government. So that was the kind of tipping point where, around two thousand one, we're just like, you know what? Let's let's. I'm going to quit the government. Let's yeah. do this full time. So that's that's the story there. But we're, we're like dominating your your, your podcast. Here. I'm sorry, this <laughs> no, no, that's no, fine. No, no. Actually, actually, you guys answered the next uh, the next uh, three questions we had all by yourselves. So <laughs> thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> yes. So one of those clients was a gentleman by the name of Jeremy Blaustein, which is going to lead directly into I suspect another one of your questions, which is how did we get involved in Dragon Quest? Yes. And um, yeah. So uh, so if uh, uh, for those who don't know, he's 
uh, he's been behind uh, some of the the uh, some of the classic PlayStation localizations. He did Metal Gear Solid. He did Symphony of the Night, and and he's done. And that's just two. He's got this giant giant library of games that he's yeah. that he's done. Really a pioneer in that field. So how did you come uh, yeah, to work? So- after guy who Hero- so much stuff. Yeah, no, it was great. But, you know, after Hero One, I did Silhouette Mirage and and uh, Lunar, Silver Star Story. We realized, wow, this is like actually like a, a kind of interesting business to be in. And at the time, I think we should be really clear, it was a wide open field. Like the word localization wasn't even widely used. We're talking in the late 90s, very late 90s, um, mm-hmm. 99-ish. And... Um, you could probably count the number of full-time Japanese to English game localizers on, on both hands on the planet. There were just so few people specializing in this. Um, and, you know, game companies, there wasn't a concept at most game companies uh, of having a, like a localization team or like a specialized localization department. Squaresoft was one of the first to realize they needed that, but they were right. rare. Uh, most game companies didn't realize that, and they would just kind of outsource their games to translation agencies who would then just randomly find people who were translators who didn't necessarily have any game background. So in the 90s, when in the late 90s, if you could say that you had ex- any kind of experience at all translating games, you were like an instant shoe-in to get on all sorts of really you know high-profile. Now they're looking like high-profile projects. At the time, they they were this was a kind of super niche sort of field to be in. But the, the how we met Jeremy was, and this is really going to date me. What, what were you saying? I don't know. Go ahead. I think we found him on Usenet. I, I think he did. Oh, does, wow. does, does the audience know what Usenet is? Yes, that's going that's going way back the news groups. Yes, the news. This is like pre-web, pre-like, you know, internet as we know it today. People interacted through these things called news groups. Um, they were basically bulletin board systems. It was actually kind of a lot yep. like Reddit, you know, <laughs> in a weird sort of way. All yeah, text like based. alt.games.finalfantasy yes. was one of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was into like, you know, all that. I mean, I don't even remember. There was, there was a million of them and they all had alt in the title, uh, I guess, mm-hmm. for some reason. I don't know why. But anyway, um, I think Jeremy advertised looking for translators in a game group or something like that. But you didn't know who, what, what I, I clearly remember that you didn't know what kind, which project that he was working on. Yeah, you didn't know because I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't say because I really remember that you had a, you had long talk on the phone with yes. Jeremy, and you hang up the phone, and then you came up, and then it says like, "Do you know who that is? Do you know who that is? He worked on like Metal Gear Solid." Yeah, and yeah. Then, um, <laughs> I, I didn't because I didn't know he worked on Metal Gear Solid. And like it, during the conversation, you know, we were discussing, you know, because he's trying to kind of vet his translators. I said, what have you played recently? What are some good localizations? And I, I said, because at the time, Metal Gear Solid to me was the kind of pinnacle of really good game localization. Yeah. And also they use a motion capture. Now today is it so. Uh, yeah. Like recording with like actual. Yeah. Voice actors. Now today is like, duh. But uh, back in time, it's totally. Yeah. That was cutting edge. edge. And so, of course, Jeremy worked on it. So, of course, I was like, we instantly got the job. <laughs> like, oh, you like that game? Well, guess what? Um, I remember, you know, feeling, feeling like I had really kind of, you know, reached a certain pinnacle or so, wow, I'm like talking to the guy who's in charge of localizing Metal Gear Solid. And then he told me that the project was uh, uh, Dragon Quest or Dragon Warrior, I guess, as it was called back then. I was like, wow, God, that's like a, that's a, that's a series with a lot of history and a lot of like cultural value to it. So that's how it started, basically with a with that post online, which I must have been on Usenet because they're like Twitter, social media. Before this is decades before that that kind of stuff started. Yeah, this pretty much was the social media. Yeah, but, totally. Uh, no. 
was. Uh, seven Seven had already been out for a little while in Japan. Did you uh, did you already have an idea of what you were going to present? No, no. I mean, and this is you know, it's interesting you bring that up because back in time, especially in the '90s, there was often like a huge gap between when products of all kinds came out in Japan. Yeah. And when they oh, came yeah. out, West, whether it's anime, whether it's like toys, whether it's games. Now, like we're in this era of like simship and like simultaneous release, whether it's like Shonen Jump magazine, who's like basically releasing new, you know, installments of Naruto in real time or like, mm -hmm. you know, games same come day. out same day. Same games day. come out with like multiple languages on the same, you know, disc or, or now it's like, you know, you, you get it online. But it's um it's people raised in that environment today are, would probably be shocked to know how much of a gap there was between products coming out in Japan and, and the West. At, and least, like, at oh, least a year. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So we, I don't think we actually even went into that with, with any um, familiarization. Like nowadays it's understood you're going to play the game, you know, you're going to play through it or you're going to, you're going to play a significant chunk of it, or you're going to at least, you know, I don't really think, I don't remember except just um, uh, the Zenkoku. The, yeah, yeah. The, the big font. The big font. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't time. There wasn't time. That was the other thing. I mean, it yeah. was just an absolutely massive project. Oh, yeah. The yeah. Tight, in a tight um, yeah. world limit. Yeah. There's some we, famous photos of like the giant the shelf full of binders. With all the text in the game, um, uh, uh, Justin Lucas from uh, from Enix, uh, he once said, "I wish I had taken a picture of how much text was in that that game. If if I remember correctly, it was something like 123 inch three three ring binders full of paper." It makes sense. It makes sense. And and like you know, back people played Dragon Quest almost like like visual novels today. Like they were immersive experiences that were designed to be strung out over a lot of text. Mm -hmm. Like, because they appealed to a very different demographic than kind of hardcore gamers. There were like these kitchen gamers, that's an actual word in Japanese for like mm -hmm. mothers who would play after their kids went to school. And like, you know, it was like a societal phenomenon. And it, like, it really appealed to people who are not traditional gamers. So I think that's the reason why the text really ballooned. People wanted an experience that would be kind of strung out and extended you know what i'm saying oh yeah so you know it was huge we knew it was huge and what hiroko is referring to is the fact that at the time like you couldn't do anything with custom fonts or anything like that so like japanese is what's japanese characters are what known as double bite characters mm -hmm. because you need extra room to display them and there is yeah. an english font set within the japanese font set so you can display romaji which are what they call you know english alphabetical alpha numerical mm -hmm. things and unfortunately, on this project, due to technical limitations, we had to use double byte English characters in the translation, which really it, it halves the amount of text you can display on screen at any given time. Yeah, it's 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 doubly bad because uh, you know the Japanese has a kanji characters to say, for example, uh, the kan you know the kanji for purple, it's one kanji, one character, just one double byte. But if you type into <laughs> Yeah, translation, P-U-R-B-L-E. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's right there. It's a, and yeah. I, I, I remember like all the translators, you know, including you, like yeah. people, God, Japanese are cheating, Japanese yeah, are cheating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, it yeah, was menus were hell. So I don't remember any of it except just double bites, um, tight were limit. Oh man, it was rough. Yeah, and I remember Jeremy, Jeremy had like pushed back, you know, and, and was really like, can you please, you know, is there anything you can do about this? And they couldn't. Um, so we just had to stick with that. But I, you know, the, the myths, so Dragon 
Quest or Warrior, I guess it was released as in in America. Uh, seven. I mean, I just I just remember literally coming home from work and and just sitting in front of the computer and doing that for hours and hours. And we started as translators, and then Jeremy kind of promoted us to editors. I remember. And there was just this constantly revolving team of of translation people. Jeremy was just like desperate to get enough people. And he, there was a, I, I wouldn't be surprised if like fifty translators worked on that. Oh yeah! You know? Not yeah. only is it not so, only is it a big game, it also introduced the party chat, and and yeah. you have to talk to your party members uh, uh, after they react to practically everything in the game. So. Uh, so when you're an editor, what's it like working on that aspect and going back and forth to keep all the quotes and characterization consistent? I, I, that's the th so the editor's job was to keep things consistent, but it was a constant race for time in that. And like mm -hmm. there were no translation tools. Everything was being done. I think I think May Hiroko and I were talking about this earlier. I think maybe towards the end of that project, Jeremy introduced Jeremy and a and an engineer friend of his developed like a prototype translation memory system. They called it WordBox. Oh. And it was it was it was very cutting edge stuff. Nobody else had this is way before now like programs like Trados and MemoQ are widely used in the industry. But Jeremy and his engineer friend had like kind of come up with this idea. I don't, I we definitely use that on later projects with Jeremy. Shenmue. Shenmue, Shenmue 2 for sure. So and multiple, maybe, yeah, multiple translators can go in. Tales of Destiny, maybe? The, the, that so. I think, so. I, think so. I mean, all the projects that we worked on. But that's, that's a whole nother story. story. But yeah, it was, it was tough. Consistency was really difficult. And, and to be honest, back in time in the 90s, like that, that wasn't the priority. Like, coming up with voices and maintaining them. It was just, can we get this done? You know, because the NXI just wanted a text. Um, right. They just wanted something that they could implement in the game. You know, they wanted to just be able to release the game in the States. And I, I get the impression that like a lot of Japanese companies to the higher ups, like the targeting the American market was not that important. Like Dragon Quest was a huge hit in Japan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know? And to them, the fact that it was even being localized into English was probably kind of like a like an extra, you know, like I, I don't kind of from yeah. from what I've learned from uh, from talking to several people um, back in the day and also kind of uh, kind of what was going on now, they've uh, they were a small office. And they were just kind of an afterthought of Japan, and they really, they really did try and do the best with what they had. Um, and but, uh, but with Seven, it was uh, uh, Justin, the former product manager. It was really a race against time because they wanted to get that game out, and it was also a huge game. And the and the PlayStation life cycle was dying fast. Yes. Yes. Well, nowadays, and and starting probably didn't start for another decade after that. Like localization teams started to have more of a stake and a voice in the development process and games started to be made from the ground up, not only with localization kind of elements and tools built in, uh, but also like an understanding that it would take X amount of time to, to localize X amount of text. At the at the time in the in the late 90s, even those really fundamental questions of how long is this going to take were not really set and understood. And so there were a lot of promises made and like and and schedules constructed that weren't really feasible or realistic by modern standards and that's not that that's not kind of i don't mean that as any kind of like to cast shade on on annex or jeremy or anything like that it was just how it was back then like we didn't yeah. know, we were all kind of making up the rule book as we went along 
Yeah. Um, so what, what was the, what was the turnaround time that you were given for that project from start oh, to finish? I just remember it being too short. It was, it was months. <laughs> we're talking months, but I remember like just having these constant phone calls with Jeremy were like, we're both kind of like, Oh my God, you know, how is this going to get done? And then like Jeremy like took on another project and we got taken off seven and put on tales of destiny. And so we had to quickly rush through Tales of Destiny and then get back to Seven. And by that time, like a bunch of other translators and editors had cycled through. And it was just, it was kind of a patchwork, um, to be honest. And it was just, you know, that's just how it was back then, really. <laughs> you were working for the government. <laughs> yeah, I'm working to, by day. I'm and Hiroko is yeah. like studying for her, you know, is trying to write her thesis, you know, for... No, no, that was after. Yeah, was after, but so it was just, oh, that was after, after you graduated. Yeah. yeah, but God, yeah, that was... <laughs> So, so not a lot of sleep happening, you know, but we made a lot of really great friends and like it was a really great experience. And the things I think all of us learned from that really helped us grow as, as, as translators and localization professionals. I mean, you, literally at this time in, in, in history, if you said you were in localization, even game companies, a lot of game companies wouldn't understand what that meant. What is that? Oh, you mean you translate? Yeah. And this is before localization really took off. And it was also before, like, I remember Hiroko and I would sell our services as all Japan to companies. And they go, well, why do you need a Japanese person? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, the game's in Japanese. It's better to have natives of both languages working on it. And they're like, well, I don't know. You know, now it's understood <laughs> that you need oversight of people who are natives in, in multiple, you know, in both languages, target and source to get the highest quality. But back in time, uh, translation and localization were seen by many companies as kind of secretarial in nature. And also solo work. And also solo work. You know, oh, what, you, what, you can't translate by yourself? What, what? You know, kind of, they'd almost be like aggressive, some companies that we approached. And But it was good. It helped us weed out the people who were kind of more serious about localization because, you know, uh, we quickly zeroed in on Squaresoft as being a company, partially because I went to college with uh, a kind of legendary Squaresoft translator by the name of Alex O. Smith. And okay. Alex, wow. Alex localized the the, the, um, the bouncer. And uh, uh, what else? He did a lot of other vagrant story. Oh, okay. Final Fantasy. He was well, that was later. After later. after he went freelance, he he worked I on the, the even numbered Final Fantasy games. Like he did ten and ten two. But Alex was like a really um, he he went into games immediately after graduating from school. He immediately got kind of picked up by Squaresoft. I think he was working in like their Hawaii offices for a while, and then he went to something. He went to Tokyo. But so he he knowing him, he gave us like the intro to the localization team at Squaresoft, which was rapidly. I think this is right around the time they became Square Enix. Okay. Well, he introduced us before that because I remember we were working on Final Fantasy XI. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, cool. I didn't. I didn't know that. that we one, did a lot of the. We didn't kind of slipped under my research. We, no, 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 no. It's, it's not really widely known because we didn't do like any of the in-game dialogue. We worked on the like help files yeah, help and files. manuals. We were oh, doing man. like we did that in when we were still in Washington. Yeah, we were still in DC. So. And I remember, like, the idea of, like, hooking into a, like, massively multiplayer online game was a super cutting edge at the time. And it was tough. It was really tough to do technically because you weren't going through the internet. You were actually, like, hooking into their intranet or oh, something. okay. Yeah, like, mm -hmm. remember, they sent us, like, a test, a PlayStation test station. That's right. You know, we had to, like, string up Ethernet. We had to get this whole thing going on in the house to, like you know, to accommodate it in the apartment. But anyway, yeah. So we had some we had had some experience with Final Fantasy with with the with Squaresoft, with Square and and then after they became Square Enix and they 
started doing Final Fantasy, I'm sorry, when Dragon Quest, when Dragon Quest 8 came up, I forget exactly how we got introduced to that team or whatever, whether it was Alex who introduced us or Aziz Hinoshita. Aziz Hinoshita was like the head I mean, of the Final Fantasy at 11. At that time, or maybe you now, the people in the square, the square the, the, yeah. people, the all the translators and working for Square, I mean, you are friends. And so, yeah, so anyway, that's after, of course. So that's how we got into final. That's how we got onto uh, Dragon Quest, and by this point, it was Quest Eight. Uh, Richard, I remember there was a uh, Jin Kimura was the was the production manager, a guy I don't think he's with them anymore. Uh, and then Richard Honeywood was the localization manager on that one. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had, and he had a uh, Will and Claire from uh, from Plus Alpha and yeah, Morgan Russian from Slock. And Morgan, Slock. Yeah. And that was that was final. Actually, you know, what? I'm not going to. You, you ask questions. Sorry, yes. we're, we're taking we're taking over. No, 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 it's okay. <laughs> not at all. Uh, Liam, uh, Liam, uh, you had something to ask first, I believe. Yeah, sure. Did um, did working on Dragon Warrior Seven prepare you at all for uh, Dragon Quest Eight in some ways? In, in a sense, really. But it was there were very different pro. Like the technology had changed, the, the attitude toward localization had changed. Um, in a lot of ways, I think you could say that our, that Final Fantasy. Uh, geez, I'm sorry, I keep saying that Dragon Quest Eight was kind of the first modern localization. Project that, that was that the we, first. I think that was the first Dragon Quest made by Square Enix. Yes. Not it just was. Enix alone. Yeah. yeah. So it so not really yeah, we, it was I think like it started it started when it was still Enix. Um yeah. and then I think like the merger happened and like, well well we'll just release it now. <laughs> I mean the lead time, the dev time on that must have been on the order of years, you know. But by that point, localization was understood to be a necessity. Like you couldn't if you if you had any aspirations of being a real like international game company, you needed a localization. Yeah, and so because everything was new, so the aim was they tried to make British English. English yeah, in that game. Yeah, which is pretty new back then, but they didn't want to be authentic British English because the mar the biggest market is America. So that's why we were part of the team. Yeah. So make it British English like <laughs> so that Americans like Matt Could can understand. understand. Yeah. You know, okay. Because there's a danger that if you go too British English and you know you have too many British in jokes and too many you know things like that, that it's going to be kind of incomprehensible. And I remember like the James Bond movies, like that kind of British. Not that they wanted to make like a James Bond style vernacular, but like those are a Brit they star a British hero in a British setting, but anybody in the world can understand them. You okay. know that kind of thing. That was and Richard was really, really, really insistent that this be a kind of British forward game because it's set in a kind of medieval world. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, castles and kings and things like that, and uh, that was his directive from the very, very beginning. Yeah, because it, it seems like it seems like he really set out to do a localization in a completely new style than really anything that had been done before. Yes. Um. So, uh, so, but you were working. Uh, that was the first kind of in-house localization, and it was going on while while uh development was happening yes. so so what was that like because like you had you had a uh, richard honeywood you had will and claire and morgan so you're working with a pretty big team <clears throat> so so like what parts just like how did you uh, collaborate and what parts yeah. can, uh, can you say like that's mine i did that it's we did we definitely like we split up the towns i remember that the one i definitely remember the is, first we played game yeah this there was a huge familiarization like a month long it's day, one month and they paid us to play the game for a month which which was unheard of at the time. Wow. I remember that was that was part yeah, of it. Yeah, but the thing is, the thing is, like, but it, it's not playing game. We have we have to read every single text. Yeah, go down every. So uh, so, they, so if you 
you die, you you know, you have to start all over again, and which is not good. So they gave us <laughs> they call it they they called it God mode. Yeah. So basically you have like I don't remember, but it's like the highest Yeah, basically maxed eight, out on yeah, your Yeah, ten thousand HP or <laughs> so you you know, forty thousand items or whatever, and then it's so that you just cannot die. And then you <laughs> we just we play the game every yeah, and it of course some sometimes we have to die because we need to check and what kind the of text pop out. Yeah. Um but so it's it's not enjoyable. It's a job. But we did it we saw so Will and Claire did it in their in yeah, so for that for that aspect, we were playing at separate. our houses. You know, we were playing like you know in our home offices or whatever. Then we met uh, in, Tokyo. Oh, in Tokyo at the Square Enix yeah. office, and then and then and then um, to spend days, two weeks. No, like it was at least a full month or more. No, 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 no. Be, because we had a meeting. Oh, the pre the pre thing. Yeah, so, so to create the uh, the glossaries. Um, yeah, we had to create a glossary. We you know, the characters, characterizations. Names. We split up the towns who because we wanted each town to have like a different, you know, Richard's idea was that each town being a separate town would have its own kind of, you know, lingo and vernacular. And some would be more British, some would be less, you know, we took Impichu, I think was a big one. And I know we had like two or three So others. anyway, so we, we first, we established the firm, uh, the vocabulary. Yeah. And then we separate. Yep. And then we we separate in the, we we walked in our, our own office. We were walking on office instead of a Square Enix office. Yeah. And then they do do the, the, do the work separately by town, like you you know like yeah, Matt town, said. Yeah, like that line but dialogue, yeah. it's it's not totally uh the separated. We we you know, we swap yeah. we swap the translations and then let, you know let the Will and Claire uh, declare uh look at we, you know, look at our translation and, we, and looked then we looked at their translations and then they made a comments and then they swapped again and then it, then the Morgan edited it. Yeah. Yeah, and then okay. once a week or once a week or something we once a week. Twice a week, we we met in uh, the Square Enix offices, offices, and then they talk and then yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I remember. Well, the biggest the biggest difficulty I remember was the magic system, like coming up with how we were going to localize, you know, Mera and Mera Mera and like all of these things. And all of us, like for a week and two weeks, came up with these competing different ideas. And some were good, some were stupid. You know, it's just in a brainstorming process. It's just you, you have to like push the envelope of what's possible. But the thing is, like a target text, the target, the the the, um, the Japanese text are so much. So I, you know, we, you know, we, we that we said on the tweet, uh, we didn't have break time. We just could not afford it. So just we just sit down in the meet, the room and then discuss, discuss, discuss. Yeah. And then whatever whatever it is somebody wants to go to the bathroom, just stand up and go and come back. Yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> eat lunch together and talk still talking. Yeah. We're just locked in the room. Locked yeah, we're talking at lunch. Yeah, you were like dreaming about it, weren't you? Oh yeah, it was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. Will had so, said uh uh, Will had said uh, a while back that everyone dreamt up all kinds, uh, all kinds of crazy jokes, and you two tried, uh, uh, tried in vain to keep everyone in check, but soon realized resistance was futile and joined the party. Oh no, no, no! I don't, I don't remember it that way. The, the, the resistance. I remember the, the, the one resistance was that they wanted to put in uh, rhyming Cockney slang in a lot of places. Oh wow! <laughs> yes, they did. Genghis, 
it ended up being Yangus having it, but like I was just like, like this is really funny, especially when you guys are acting it out. But I just don't get it. I don't understand what he's saying. So like the concession made was was that you know they would whatever Yangus said in rhyming Cockney, he would say again, or some other character would say to explain, explain what, it what it is. Yeah. Um. It, it became there. There was no no no. We loved. I mean, th there was a lot of arguing over which jokes you wanted in and which you wanted out. You know, or like which were going too far, like that kind of stuff. But it was not like. It wasn't like we were hired as the serious people or anything like that. Definitely not. Uh, oh, yeah. he, was, you know. uh, he was saying it in just like a playful way and just how much, how much oh, yeah, fun yeah, it was. No, no. no, no, it was great. It was it was actually really fun to collaborate like that. And I remember distinctly uh, what one of the funny things was like I, these conversations would go on for hours and hours and I would constantly be like, okay, well, that's it. Great. We're done. Right. Done. Next. Next. And then like, I remember Claire being like, oh, here's Matt, you know, trying to, you know, trying to put a pin in the conversation right here. And uh, it was just funny, you know, it was, it was, but that, but those kind of collaborations and those kind of conversations are very rare in localization these days. Um, it's been kind of commoditized, like get it out, get it done, get it done quick. And so the idea of putting all the translators and the editor, and Richard's not only kind of the head guy, he's also got like a lot of technical background. Um, he was a programmer. He had actually programmed on the right end, like overhead shooting games and stuff like that. So like he was like a whiz when it came up to technical solutions to problems. Um, having everybody in the same room, you know, whether we were laughing or strangling each other <laughs> great. Yeah. I've got I've got a really quick kind of tangent uh, question, then I'll let Liam ask his ask his a question. This is something I've uh, I've always wondered about. Maybe you know, maybe you don't. Who came first? Did Yangus uh, come uh, come first or did Ricky Grover come first because their designs are they look exactly alike. <laughs> so like oh. I'm wondering if the if if they had the basic idea and if they cast the actor first or Oh, 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 oh. Uh, yeah, right, the actor. No, you know, no, no, no. Yangus the character definitely came first. Definitely. Okay. And then I remember Richard coming back from England where he had done <laughs> casting sessions or whatever. And he's like, "We got Yangus." Uh, <laughs> and like that's was, amazing because what usually happens in situations like this is that the recording studio will send you a bunch of um different actor like three actors for each role like they'll send you samples of them first it'll just be off their like kind of their clip file do you know what i mean like every actor has like their kind of vocal resume yeah and like so they're real they're real exactly and then, like, once you narrow it down, like, maybe they might send five or six, then you'll narrow it down to three, and then you'll have those three read actual lines in the character's dialogue. And then, together with the director of the game, you'll decide. And uh, in a lot of cases, the Japanese directors tend to, like, really want to pick foreign voices that sound a lot like the Japanese ones that don't actually work in, in English. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, for a really strong female character, they'll want to pick, like, a really high-pitched, squeaky person because that's what you know kawaii voices sound like in japanese but there right. was it hurts my ears rich yeah <laughs> richard, richard was really really strict with them i guess you can say about saying no no we, we have to keep do these characters like this kind of characters this kind of voice and this and i i think he had a lot more headache than we did he was really in charge of that process but yeah i don't know where he found that guy who did yangus but he was Yangus. So when you're brainstorming so many ideas, unfortunately, a few things get cut. Uh, what were some of the things that you wish had made it in? And uh, was there anything you passionately fought to keep? 
I remember, what do you remember? Did you have any jokes? I mean, there were tons of names that would come up for, you know, I remember like one I remember coming up and like, and so sometimes somebody would come up with a joke and like the other parts of the team wouldn't get, you know how it goes, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I remember one, I can't, there was a, there's a dog, like a bulldog and he's all in red. And I remember I'm like, I want to call this guy Mars Rover, you know, like, <laughs> like, the, like, the, like, like the little truck that's driving around on Mars. Yeah. Like, nobody got it. Like, that's not funny. And I'm like, oh, he's red, like Mars. And I love dog. that. And I don't know if that that's, actually made it through the game. That's still funny today. We need more Americans on this team, man. So <laughs> well, the, the one that I remember was the Prince Charmelet. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh. That um the the character who was like a plumpy the the, 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 the the pampered prince character. Oh yeah. yeah. We yeah, he's famous. To, yeah, so we wanted to name him Prince Charmless. And uh Well no, no so the, the joke was yeah. the joke was and I remember whenever you're this is like a writer's room. So you need yeah. to get you yeah. the whole when you're pitching ideas <laughs> in a writer's room, you're trying to get buy-in from the other writers yeah like if you can right. you can make them laugh or get, yeah and then you get the kooky points exactly so like every and i'm this is true on dragon quest 8 it's true whether you're writing for tv it's just the writer's room it's just how it goes and i remember i, I just had this idea that because the character is such a nose pick <laughs> literally he, just, he, he wanted to come up with something that kind of made him seem like that and so like the idea was that his parents had named him charmelet like in the French, like with a French pronunciation, but it's actually, but Yangus in particular always spelled, read it charmless. And and other people around, and he said, no, it's Chamelay, Chamelay. And it's, but it's spelled charmless. And I remember like Morgan in particular was like, yes, yes. <laughs> and like, you know, I, I think Claire and Will were kind of on board. But they, they're laughing. They're laughing. And then Ricky Richard was really against it for some reason. <laughs> And too obvious or something. Or something. He's like, nobody would name their kid. Nobody would spell their... And I'm like, yeah, but there's nobody would... The dragons <laughs> don't exist either, you know, if we're talking about things that don't exist. So this went around and around. And I think finally Richard approved it with some... Like, he injected something else into it to make it palatable for him. Yeah, yeah. But it's a collaborative process. But I remember that whole thing. Are we going to call him Charmless or Chamlet or, oh, like, yeah. what the spelling of <laughs> yeah. it was? That was a big, big debate that I remember really well. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, my first- And then of course the famous line was Gojo Shar. Oh, Gojo Shar, yeah. Yeah, I wrote about this on Twitter, but like yeah, Morgan had like, you know, of course he's an editor, he has a real ear for language. And he had he had taken the train so many times that he had memorized- Shibuya. That he had memorized the- The, the announcement. Yeah, the, the conductor's yeah, announcement. Yeah, conductor says Shibuya, is, Shibuya, Gojo Shar. <laughs> and he's so And thank you know, the Shibuya, Shibuya. Uh, thanks for writing. Yeah, thanks. And for- then, but he listened in every single day. So he started. Oh, <laughs> he, started he started copying. Copying. And so he would come in. He would. I remember the doors <laughs> to the office. He would. He would like come into the office. The so doors would go. Josha. Go Josha. I got told and like everybody's just cracking up. So they that quickly turn into the inside joke. And then it's like, okay, well, let's just insert it in in the game. And yes. then that, um, no, because it became an inside joke. We started just saying it. Yeah, we started immediately. We started each other. Like everybody just started saying that when they came into the office. Like, even <laughs> people, <laughs> even people not on the team. It's like an open plan office. Yeah, exactly. And then we realized at some point, I can't remember whether it's Richard or us or 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 Claire and Will. We're like, hey, wouldn't it be interesting if we like we had some kind of unique culture, cultural like linguistic things in some of these towns 
that like expressed the idea that maybe they were speaking English as a second language, yeah. and in, 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 it ended up getting injected into impeach you. Impeach you. Yes. Where like Gojoshar is like their greeting, and I remember Richard was like, "No, no, we can't do this. We can't do this." <laughs> and he actually like had a big meeting with yeah. we weren't involved in the meetings none of us were involved in the meetings like with the annex people yeah like okay. richard would have to go and sometimes he'd come back like really like you know stressed out from those like having to get buy-in from them on something we were doing or, or whatever it's just you know how the process works in any right. game and uh he, he got buy-in on that yeah, he actually managed admits. to sell it to them and uh, so that's that made it into the game, but that was another fun thing. Yeah, that was a fun thing. Yeah, yeah. I actually and then, yeah, there's so many. I mean, because you had to name all of the different, you know, monster characters. So there's and some of them are set like slimes are going to be slimes. Slime. You know what I mean? And if the name worked, we kept it. But if the name there's so many word plays and puns in Dragon yeah. Quest, yeah. The, the biggest one being the magic system. Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, but that was really tough because uh, English does not have the same type of onomatopoeia that Japanese does. And also we have to do classified yes we had to come up with hierarchies and yes. stuff richard ended up coming up with the system on that one mm -hmm. frizzle frizzle <laughs> <laughs> and i remember seeing online after the game came out that people thought that he was that that or we were because nobody at the time knew exactly who had done what that we were like snoop dog snoop dog oh, yeah <laughs> That was the man. number one comment from everyone because Snoop had adopted that way of yes. speaking at the time. Now he just hangs out with Martha Stewart. <laughs> I can just see it for the record. That like literally did not enter into anybody's thinking at all. I mean, I listened to, like, I love Doggy Style. Like that was like a classic album when I was in college. But like, you know, <laughs> you know, but it was not, that was just not, we were so desperate to come up with something. Like I remember, I don't know, somebody came up with a Latin style thing. Somebody came up with like, well, let's just do a Japanese style thing. Somebody came up with this. Somebody came up with that. Morgan came up with one. Claire, Will, Hiroko. And finally it was Richard's like, you know what? It's going to be Kafrizzle. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, it's it's going to be this. And, and I love he that. It so, but yeah, I don't think, I don't think Richard was channeling Snoop Dogg. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but one by one. Yeah. And it was tough because wow, somebody, yeah. you could always poke a hole in it, right? Like, yeah. oh, well, then why is this this? Like, if this is Kazizzle and this is Kafrizzle, why is this not Kajizzle? You know what I mean? Like, that kind of thing. <laughs> but no, it's because you're making it up. And so, like, whatever system there was, people were just poking holes in it nonstop, which is how you make something stronger. Yeah, exactly. That this is exactly. a good process. Like, I, that, that kind of, I, I would say that, like, one of the big things I learned from this is that, um, you know, the, the, the realities of working with a team that has such co disparate cultural backgrounds, the friction is actually a good thing. Yeah, the, ar so. the arguments are a good. And the, the arguments never devolved into like throwing books across the room or anything like that. Don't get the wrong Because wrong everybody idea. wants to do right. Not yes. right. Everybody wants to make good product. Yes. So, so everybody was passionate. There was a lot of passion. <laughs> there was a lot of friction. There was a lot of laughing. There were a lot of tears. <laughs> I'm glad, glad nobody got it attacked with a Dragon Quest Seven script yeah, finder. Nobody, nobody is like beating anybody with like one of those one of those like strategy guides. Um, you know, nothing like that. No, 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 no. There was no like. There was. I, I can't even remember anybody actually getting angry. Do you know what I mean? There was no like stomping. Out. There was. There was some real stressful like. Geez, I don't know how long, how much longer I can take this meeting kind of things. But no, nothing. Uh, job. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Great. I mean, in in some ways, eight eight really ki uh, kicked off an evolution in localization, like not just translating the game, but presenting it in a very unique and identifying style. Did you realize what you're 
what you were doing at that time? I mean, and just just afterwards, just like what what are your thoughts on its impact, not just for for the localization, but where the series is now? We were just happy that like we were finally in a team in a company that took localization seriously. Where okay. I was thought, I remember really just being happy about that. You know, I don't think we felt we were on the cutting edge. We felt like this is how it should be should done. Be how it should be? Yes. You know, and Richard was super super detailed. So like he was. Normally in, in games at that point, like people didn't bother changing the text if if like a variable was singular versus plural, you know, mm-hmm. like um, I'm trying to think of an example, like, you know, you, you, you're like you carrying one book versus five books, you know, mm-hmm. and it, so usually what would happen is you have one books, you have two books. Mm. You have three books, you know what I mean? Like in, in sentences that called back to variables. And Richard was like, no, no, no. I'm going to like personally handwrite code to make sure that when that variable, that sentences with variables in them grammatically alter based on what the number of things being counted is and things like that, that was really cutting edge. Mm-hmm. At the time, That's I, don't, amazing. I don't know if any other game did that. And, and Richard had the chops to do that kind of thing. He'd write these elaborate macros, like uh, Excel macros mm-hmm. and things like that yeah. um, and for us and, and for the team. And that was really, you know, I was like, wow, this is like, you know, I love it when a plan comes together kind of thing. It was, <laughs> it was good. It was experience. It was experience. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't know how, how much that really affected other localization teams or, or anything. We never actually worked for Square Enix again after that. Um, oh, okay. we, I just, I just, I re- I remember playing playing other games and other and other RPGs after that, and it's not that it's not that that work was bad. I was just like, oh, okay, you know. After after playing eight, I was like, oh, this is pretty different because I I think I played Final Fantasy four for the PSP not too long after that, and like compared to uh, uh, compared to eight, you know, like I said, it's not that it was bad. I was just like, oh, okay, eight kind of stands out now. Yeah, <laughs> it I really mean- stands out now. I don't know that it was the first seriously localized game because, as I said, Alex was working on like but Vagrant it Story. It was uh, ambitious. It was hugely ambitious. Yeah, definitely ambitious. And so, from that standpoint, I mean, it was great. It was great to get to work on that. You know, we got to meet, I remember Yuji Hori, who's like kind of came down to meet us at one point. That's right. We've had several in-house experiences like since then. It's now it's very rare to do that kind of thing. Um, but I remember when we were working on Ninja Gaiden, we were working kind of in a very similar situation on the Ninja Gaiden series. And uh, the localization uh, producer, Andrew Szymanski, uh called down Itagaki-san. I remember him coming to this leather jacket, sunglasses. Yes. <laughs> you know, and it was like every game director, like in my mind, every game director is like sunglasses, you know, kind of like, oh, hey, cool. Thanks, guys. You know, like, and then like a leaves and because like, they're kind of like above it all, you know, mm-hmm. they got people working for them. But it was, it's always funny to, to kind of meet people like that when you're in the trenches. And uh, yeah, so it's. It was a kind of first and experience working in-house like that. And we did get to do it a couple of times after that in other projects, but never to the kind of immersive degree that was. Um, okay. I, I think that's still kind of uncommon these days that you I have so too. that team working so tightly together. People just kind of like basically living together to get the game done. <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, that was so uh, so Dragon Quest has recently turned 35 and uh, and forever has a place in Japanese pop culture. Uh, how were you introduced to Dragon Quest? Uh, were you fans before? I played it on the NES. I played Dragon Warrior on the NES. Did you ever play Dragon Quest? No. You never played it. <laughs> but you knew of it. Of course. Of course. <laughs> really, the only thing I, and all the connections that I have is a Toyama Akira. 
Yeah. It's his uh, manga, Dr. Slump. And, you know, that's just, that is it. Yeah, I mean, you can't escape it. It's like the Star Wars of games in Japan. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that's funny. that it's like that, but certainly in the 80s and 90s, that was the case. Like when a Dragon Quest game came out, it was a, like a red letter. But of course, so, you know, because I have to familiarize themselves, you know, like, you know, I flip through the pages of the <clears throat> guidebooks of, you know, the guidebooks, how, to, you know, the play, uh, how to play the Dragon Quest playbook, you know, for the previous yeah, yeah, games yeah. and stuff. And then, so, but yeah, as a, if, if you're asking me if I played a game before, that's, that's no. No. <laughs> no. Okay. But yeah, no, I mean, it was it was just an honor to be working on it. And like, I actually had to revisit this. I um, I probably should have mentioned this in the beginning. I just, I, uh, I wrote a book. It's called Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World. And it kind of, it's a history of modern times. It's told through Japanese consumer products, uh, ranging from toys and like karaoke and Hello Kitty products to things like anonymous image boards. And of course, video games are in there. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I had to kind of do uh, a lot of research on it's, it's a cultural history. So it's not actually a history of the products. It's, it's like how these how these products transform Japanese society and then transform Western tastes in the process. And like I, I went back and watched a lot of contemporary news footage about Dragon Quest. Dragon Quest comes up at one point. It's not like a main focus, but it talks about how games transitioned from this kind of time-killing leisure pursuit of space invaders and Pac-Man and stuff into kind of this whole new form of escape for people. And Dragon Quest was really at the forefront of that, uh, really at the yeah. forefront of mainstreaming of games into mainstream society, not hardcore gamers, not people whose identity is a gamer, but people at large. And uh, huge. I was, huge. yeah, and was I was huge. struck when I was writing that those, that stuff, that, like what an honor it was to get to work on those projects in, in kind of real mm -hmm. time, some of them. Yeah, so. that's amazing. I, I'm, I'm actually reading the book now. Oh, uh, thank and you. It's, yeah, it's it's really very rich full of, uh, of um, it's very thoroughly researched and, and a very enjoyable read. Thank you. The paperback, the paperback edition with revisions post 2021 just came out yesterday. That's right. Oh, nice. That's right. That's oh, wow. Right. Yes. So oh. please it's, find it where books are sold near you. Pure invention. <laughs> we'll touch on, we'll touch on that a little bit more later, but, um, what have been, what have been some of your favorite Dragon Quest related memories, either playing the games or the stories working on them or some of the people you've met along the way? So many. I mean, we wouldn't have met Jeremy Blaustein without Dragon Quest. You know, we wouldn't have met Richard. We wouldn't have met Claire and Will. You know, we met a lot of interesting people, had a lot of interesting experiences. I mean, you know, what, what is your most memorable Dragon Quest moment? I, was, I think it's my uh, so-called nightmare, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, tell us the nightmare. Tell us, tell us the nightmare. Basically, I was dreaming. I was, I was, I was in the game world, a Dragon Quest Eight game world, and I joined the party. And it, and, and my attack is basically a translate translating their lines, and, and they, they became so. All the characters became so frustrated with me because I was slow. And <laughs> Indian, Indian, right before I woke up in the the Dragon. Quest theme song. Da, 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 da. Okay, it's just playing, and I woke up hard. It's like, oh my god! Oh man! I think <laughs> the crazy part is because even though to me that was a stress from job, but you know, if you are not in the game industry, it's just a funny story. Yeah. And so nobody <laughs> just no none of my friends took it seriously. It just laughed, and I just laughed. Yeah, because you know. <laughs> Local game, working in games sounds like a dream job. 
That's <laughs> how fucking stressful it is most of the time. I mean, just imagine that you know that um you know the youngest has started you know cockney or whatever, and then they just you know yelling at me. So that's my memory of that. Yes. You know, the, vivid memory yeah yeah, yeah and then yeah. then at the gojo shop yeah gojo definitely shop. no it was fun it was like it felt like we were really like had had reached a a, a, a new level you know what i mean like it created like, something we, we started working yeah. like on on like on paper in a pizza you know restaurant <laughs> in what in the suburbs of washington dc and like, here we are sitting in the you know the halls of venerated square enix translating one of the most popular you know video game franchises Japan has ever produced. Um, it really felt like a personal high point for us in a lot of ways. Yeah. That's so, amazing. So yeah. living in uh, in Japan, has Dragon Quest played a role in a way you'd never expect? For example, like, uh, do you run into large crowds on release day or meet someone uh, who's who, someone else who's worked in the series in some way? I mean, it's something, it's a calling card. You know, like, if you mention you worked on that, everybody, you know, instantly, everybody's, oh, wow, Dragon Quest. You know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> It's something, no, but you know, now of course there's like digital release and, and like, you know, so the, the giant crowds aren't there. And, and to be honest, there, there's so many games now that they've done all these kind of spinoffs and like mobile games. So I don't think Dragon Quest releases have the same grip on the Japanese imagination that they once did, but Okay. It's still a very popular and, and beloved franchise. You had mentioned on, uh, on uh, Twitter that you had worked with someone who'd, uh, who drew the strategy guys for for one, uh, two, and three? Yes, <laughs> go ahead. No, for, go ahead. For one of your books. Well, we when we were locked in the in the in in the Thunderdome cage with Morgan and and everybody uh, at Square Enix, the there were, we were given like tons of research materials to assist us in in doing our projects doing our translations and stacks of uh, strategy guides, Japanese strategy guides. And paging through one, we realized uh, that it was actually illustrated not by Akira Toriyama, even though it looked just like him. It was illustrated by uh, a gentleman named Yutaka Kondo, who is a really good friend of ours. He was just in our friend circle at the time. And after that, right, before? Ooh, it does. Well, we went on to work with, we hired Kondo-san. Yeah, it's after that. To after illustrate that. our book, Ninja Attack, True Tales of Samurai uh, Assassins and Outlaws, which is a kind of guidebook, an illustrated guidebook to ninja culture published by Tuttle in 2009 or 10 or so. It's a sequel to our book, Yokai Attack, the Japanese Yokai Survival Guide. This is turning into a regular, <laughs> you know, pitch session for our books. But um, Kondo-san is just like a lot of talented artists is really flexible. He has his own style, but then he can kind of like mimic others. And he got the job, I guess, to illustrate those guidebooks. And it was really funny. I remember ta talking to him after. I'm like, we found your guidebook. Okay, yeah. He's like, everybody thinks it's Akira Toriyama. It's me. <laughs> 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 well, that was really funny. I mean, uh, you know, because those games are such an intersection of so many cultures. They're an intersection yeah. of video game culture. They're an intersection of manga and anime yes. culture. Yes. They're an intersection of otaku culture. And in a, in a way, the Dragon Quest series played a key role in the mainstreaming of Japanese subcultural subcultures of all kinds into the kind of mainstream. So it's a really important cultural product as well as just like a, a hit best-selling product in general. Right. You've worked, you've worked on several pieces. Uh, of media that have been like pretty big staples of, of Japanese pop culture. I mean, how does it feel shouldering the weight of these iconic franchises and presenting it to a completely new audience? Well, we didn't, you know, this is we even as the translator, as stressful as it is, we didn't make any of these things. 
right? Like we're just kind of the, the we're kind of helping them along a little bit. So right. I don't like as much pride as I think we feel in in working on, for instance, Dragon Quest Eight, which is I, you know, and it's it is pride. I think Dragon Quest Eight remains the single top selling PlayStation Two game of all time in Japan. I'm pretty sure that's the case. I don't think there's another title that beat it because it came out pretty close to the end and it was a huge hit. But like, you know, for us, it's like we do it, we do our best and we move on. And like the, the stresses that we feel are much more about getting things done on time and in a way that pleases the clients than it is about worrying what our legacy is going to be or what you know, even what really would consumer, of course, we, we do want consumers to have a good time, but our clients are the clients. They're, our clients are the people who are paying us to localize the game. And uh, that's actually something a lot of consumers don't realize. Localizers aren't really working for them. They're working for the companies who make the final decisions on a lot of things. Um, localization has actually become kind of a four-letter word in a lot of fan circles, I think, in recent years, because they think that localizers are somehow censoring or changing things. No localization person makes changes to the core content of a game without the explicit consent and often at the direction of yes. the stakeholders who make and produce the game themselves. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, things like, please change the crosses in Dragon Quest VIII so they look like tridents so that we don't get accused of, like, making, you know, parodying Christianity or whether it's, you know, not on Dragon Quest VIII, but we on other projects, we even had, we'll change this character to a female. We'll change this male to a female or this female to a male. Or we'll eliminate this character altogether. What, what do you think will sell? Like, the only thing the creators of the game want is for their product to be a huge hit. It's a product. It's a, it's, it is culture, but it's culture secondary to being a product yeah. first. And so I think a lot of consumers abroad don't realize just how much the people creating these games prioritize them being successful products over the way that they're necessarily taken as cultural products, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. That's good to know. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. So how has uh, <laughs> how has uh, Dragon Quest impacted Japanese culture and society in a way that uh, North America or European fans might not understand? I mean, so recently, I you know, back in time, you know, there were literal almost street riots to get the game. So <laughs> Kids, kids skip school and line up. Like there were, like it would be on the news. There's amazing if you have access to news archives. I think some of the stuff is actually on YouTube. And I posted one in my Twitter thread. The contemporary news reports are like breathless and like you know society is falling apart. People are playing games. Oh my god, children, you know, cats and dogs sleeping together. It's like <laughs> yeah, it's nothing new. I mean, they said the same thing about manga. They said the same thing about rock and roll. They said the same thing about women reading novels in the 1800s. I mean, it's like it's just the new thing is always the scary thing for a lot of people and. Uh, while I don't think Dragon Quest necessarily has the same grip on the Japanese psyche that it once did, I think it's 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 important for people abroad to realize just how much of a grip it had in the 80s in particular yes. and the 90s. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it really made RPGs a thing for Japanese, you know? And now it's a yeah. phone game. And now everybody's on their iPhones playing iPhone. games everywhere. You can play like, you know, your iPhone probably has 10 times the processing power of a, you know, PlayStation or whatever, probably more. And, you know, we all carry consoles in our pockets. We all game all the time. And Dragon Quest played a key role in that, I think. That's true. I mean, RPGs were pretty much like i i always joke that that i'm i'm one of five american dragon quest fans so <laughs> uh, so when i'm wearing a dragon quest shirt out 
uh, out in public and somebody recognizes it, I'm like, oh, great. I found a sixth one. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was I mean, niche in the States. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just 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 RPGs in, in general. 15 years ago, not a lot of people played them. And now yeah. now it's one of the top genres. Well, when I was a kid growing up, you know, in the in the especially in the early 80s, the idea of an RPG on a console was kind of unthinkable. We played like Ultima. You know, we played Wizardry on PCs mm -hmm. uh, on our computers. That was where Americans were RPG gaming at the time. And I think the real genius of, you know, Yuji Hori and his team and, and Dragon Quest was translating what was a very complicated experience requiring a lot of keys into something that you could play with a Famicom controller, which is just two buttons and a, and a you know, D-pad. Mm -hmm. um, that really took some doing. and But by simplifying things, it, it opened up RPG playing to a bigger, much bigger audience than simply, you know, PC geeks, which is what we were, you know, at the time. But, you know, also that at the time period in Japan, there's such a small number of people using PC. Yeah, much less than America. So, yeah, so it's a, that's, that's part of huge, uh, the part too. I yeah. Mean, yep. To make the game that way, you know, not so to kind of switch. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, 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 no. Just go ahead. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so to get into kind of the the details of how of how you two work, uh, you've been translating and localizing for quite a while. So what's your average day like, if you even have one? Well, you know, now we have, I, I don't want to say we've transitioned out of localization, but most of our time has shifted into content production. Um, writing, you know, about five or six years back, we started transitioning into kind of production assistance like we would especially on games that were designed in japan but being produced in the states and we would kind of sit between the two teams and interpret for them and translate all the documentation and the game was almost secondary like when the game was done like that would get localized too but the majority of work was translating technical documents and stuff we started doing that with lost planet 3 um and then in a succession of other co-productions japanese and american co-productions for a variety of manufacturers and by the time we came out of that um process we were starting to do things like writing scripts for games hiroko and i wrote the script for world of demons which is a platinum game that came out earlier this year okay um, it's on the apple arcade so we we wrote the script for that um nice. we've been doing other things like that and i i was for the last two years three years working on pure invention my book um which was like a full-time thing uh, yeah so the the biggest the localization project, the last and biggest localization project that we worked on was manga, Doraemon. Yeah, Doraemon, we translated all of that. And that was a year of like full time. We didn't have time for games when we were local. Doraemon is like 16,000 pages of manga. Mm -hmm. And so that was like a full year of nothing but Doraemon. So like each, you know, you can't even look at a day to day, year to year. It's year very year. different what we're working on. Right now, we're basically working on books, writing books. I'm writing articles for the, like, you know, the, my writing my book led to doing a lot of magazine work. And so I've become You had more, a New Yorker article that came out. Yeah, yeah, and Demon Slayer. Boy, that that stirred up quite a bit of controversy online. I wasn't expecting. Uh, apparently, the the, the, the uh, social media team highlighted some aspect of the article that a lot of anime fans weren't really happy with. But whatever the case is. Oh, I didn't catch that. I didn't catch oh, that, yeah. that part of it. I thought the article was fine. Uh, thank you. No, I, I it, it was written with love. I mean, I, you know, I, I was trying to shed light on how anime is made in Japan, which a lot of people don't realize abroad is like very manga based. 
And the way manga are made is very editorial focused more than creator focused. And like, especially at places like Shonen Jump magazine. So I wanted to talk about that, but you know, people kind of tend to read the headline and nothing else. So um, that's just how it goes. But yes, I do a lot of writing for the, for the New Yorker. Um, I do a lot of writing for other outlets. Hiroko has been starting to write for the New Yorker too. She did a big one on cleaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, earlier this year and uh you know i've been working on the jap like the we've been working on the japanese translation of pure invention which is coming out we uh the publisher the publisher translated it but then we had to go through and like make sure it was everything was great um and that's essentially just confidence with japanese yes because now like this book came out it was a big hit in america and so now like you know people in japan are going to be looking at this as like whoa this is what americans and, and europeans brits are thinking about us so it's we wanted to make sure everything was was done right there was a really great translator who worked Mm -hmm. on that so Mm -hmm. that was cool so we've been game localization is now like it used to be 80 percent of what we do and now it's probably more like 10 but you know next year that could flip again you know what i mean if we get pulled into a big project or something like that it's really depends it really depends our job is really based project by project yeah it's project by project. project So we, you know, one of the great things about running your own company is that you can pursue projects that you personally find of interest. You're not really assigned them. Um, so, and and localization has really transitioned from when we were getting started. It was very artisanal. It was very kind of handmade. Like you, you had all these like little weird operators, like whether they're freelance or little tiny companies. And now it's really consolidated into a bunch of big agencies uh, in ways for better and for worse. Um, it, it's, it, I, I think one of the ways for better is that these agencies are able to bring a lot of technology to bear. Uh, and the ways they're worse is that I think if you're an actual translator, I think rates have really come down a lot like it's become a commodity and it's really tough uh for translators especially young ones to to kind of make a living at doing this um but you know that's just the kind of maturation of the localization industry you know we were there at the very beginning and now we're seeing these changes now and it's been really interesting to be watching that mm-hmm. yeah so cool. how's how's them apples <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Since you've been at this for a few decades now, what tools do you use, and, and has anything changed drastically, or have have some have something stayed the cha- stayed the same rather? We we basically just work in Excel files. I mean, if if a client has a, a, a translation memory system, we'll work in that. Um, I know Square Enix has its own internal um, localization memory system, translation memory tool that they use, uh, and we. But so we basically when we are. A lot of the times when we're hired by client, they hire us now less because we're like a, a, a translation factory and more because we have some sort of specific background knowledge that makes us right for the product. Like when we did Neo, for or, instance. Or Gundam. Or Gundam games for Bond out. We have a lot of experience with those franchises or with, in Neo's case, Hiroko and I wrote the book on yokai in English, literally. So that's why they came to us. And in those cases... There's much less reliance or need for translation tools since we're the ones coming up with the glossaries in the first place. We're the ones coming up with the characterizations a lot of times. And so we'll mainly work in Excel files. That's traditionally how we've worked, Um, giant Excel files. um, But sometimes we will work in translation tools, memory tools. if a if a client has a specific one that they want it's it to so use, rare to us. but it's, that's uncommon it's these days. Common. I know a lot of translators use stuff like MemoQ and Trados, uh, but we have not so far needed to use those things. Our clients have not asked us to use them, and uh, so we we stick with uh, old style, old style, old school. I'm just I'm just amazed that you've been able to tolerate Excel for that long. Oh, it's that's... horrific. <laughs> 
Oh, it's it's like I've never I've never met an Excel user that actually likes it. No, it's it's <laughs> terrible. It's terrible. And like, you know, Jeremy was actually Jeremy Blaustein was really ahead of the curve with this. He came up with a translation memory tool with a edited with a with an engineer friend of his. I think I mentioned this early on. And it turned out that that there were a lot of technical issues that prevented them from commercializing it. But I often wonder there's a parallel universe where Jeremy came up with the world's first usable localization tool and you know we're all we're all living on jeremy time uh, <laughs> um, yeah i remember that there was a cute robot icon yeah on the top of the screen <clears throat> and uh that was an output icon or something yeah, yeah, like yeah, that yeah. and they call it spit yeah and it <laughs> Yeah, so they so it's like we want to go spit. In it. Yeah, you had to spit the the from the tool. You have to spit it back into an Excel file because back then the clients were only working in Excel. So like you'd have to back then in, in like the early two thousands, a, a memory tool would have to you'd have to input the Excel and then output an Excel. Actually, still today that's how a lot of translation memory tools work. And by the way, translation memory tools are great. It's really awesome to have a dynamic glossary. It's really awesome to have like suggestions for like especially repetitive phrases for you know making sure everything's unified. But we tend to work on really quirky projects that don't have a lot of kind of generic repetitive text in them, or the repetitive generic text is held is being handled in house, and they outsource yes. the weird parts to us. Yeah, uh, that's that's often we're kind of called in as problem solvers so, yes. on mm -hmm. projects that have really niche or weird content in them, whether it's yokai or whether it's like super historic based ninja stuff or whether it, like Gundam being another example of that, like, cause I grew up on that as a kid and I have a lot of, you know, kind of connection with that, with that series. Um, so we're not kind of like, we're not in the trenches so much anymore. Like we used to be 20 years ago. And that's a good thing. I mean, I don't really yeah. think anybody, it's, it's kind of a young person's game, to be honest. It's like rock so, and roll. <laughs> uh, so from someone who's also in the, in the creative field, when you have so much work and you have so much text and you got deadlines looming over your, your head, I'm sure you have days where it's overwhelming. So mm -hmm. what have you learned over the years to dodge burnout and writer's block? And even, you know, even with you, if you have a really packed portfolio like like you two do, do you ever get that constant itch to revise and rewrite everything? <laughs> Burnout, we did, you know, Hiroko and I have a rule that we just, we never talk about work like at the dinner table and we never talk about work in our private spaces. Okay. And, and we're really disciplined about working, like getting up, going to bed pretty early, fairly, and getting up at a reasonable hour, working eight hours and then stopping. Like we never pull all nighters. Even in the beginning, we never pulled all nighters. Um, you have to you have to take care of yourself because clients won't take care of you. They're going to take and take and take because that's what they're you know they're just interested in what your output is. Yes. So even, even if they have the best the best intentions, yes. <laughs> yes. No. I mean, it's just that's how it works. It's like you know you are providing a service and they want as much service as they can yeah, get. Yeah. And also, the work is just all result basis. Yeah. So if you if you have a promise with sleeping, whatever, the outcome is not that good. Yes. So um, so just our priority, highest priority is make sure that we are healthy. Well, and also <laughs> healthy in a healthy mind. You know, one of the reasons and, I think we've survived in this so long is that Hiroko and I very early on got good at saying no. Like, no, that schedule is not reasonable. No, we can't do this. And if you want to find somebody else to do it, we understand. Like, no hard feelings. But the, the schedule you are proposing is not reasonable because of X, Y, Z. Yeah, because you know, or you know, if you want the schedule to be done, we're going to have to charge this much more to hire this many more people, or or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. You mm -hmm. you have to advocate for yourself, and a lot of times clients want to be 
told something doesn't work because they don't know. They're not localization professionals. Exactly. Um, you know, they want to be told, oh, like, well, you know, the average a translator can get is through 5,000 emoji characters in a day, you know? So if your game is 1 million characters, there's no way to get it translated in a month. There's physically no way to do that, you know, unless you hire a million people each doing one emoji, you know? Yeah, <laughs> but the thing is that then, the, but we have to unify the voice. But then, yeah, the, like the bottleneck then becomes who's going to read all of that? Who is going to edit all of that? Because an editor can only edit X amount of emoji in a day. You see what I'm saying? So like helping, you know, transitioning out of just being in the trenches of a get it done, get it done, get it done, and more into the production side of things actually helped us get healthier because then we could advocate both for ourselves and the people we hired because a lot of times all Japan would, you know, make a team to do a project. So okay. uh, yeah, just advocate for yourself. Know what, you know, the, the, you don't you don't have to burn yourself out. You know, schedules should be reasonable. You Excellent know? advice. Yes. So uh, you've worked on two iterations of Dragon Quest, both of them very different localization styles. Uh, fans from both generations can be quite passionate. So mm -hmm. how, how do you handle criticism, particularly when you've put so much work into it? We don't really listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Yeah, because, uh, because projects are done. The, it's our, out of our hands. Our client is the client. Yeah. It's not that they, 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 no matter how passionate a gamer is, they're not the ones paying us to make a living. No, no, yeah. Also, we don't own the product. Yes, yeah, so that's the other thing. We don't own the product. We, we, we own in the sense that we worked on the localization, but a lot of criticisms out there, people are like, and, and I don't blame them for this. Consumers often don't realize the difference between a bad translation and something that's written badly to begin with and is difficult or, and, or is difficult to localize. Yes. Um, there's a lot of not great writing out there and a lot of not great characterization in original Japanese games. And sometimes consumers mistake really deft localization for a genius original writing, like what the original was like in Japanese. And sometimes people mistake really clunky translations that are very faithful <laughs> to what was really clunky in the original. Do you, know, you understand what I'm saying? Right. So yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's very you know, first of all, we, like we don't spend a lot of time in fan forums or, or watching over what fans say, not because we don't care about fans or think that their opinion isn't valuable, it's but too busy it, for next project. Well, yeah, a we're busy on the next project, and b like it's not something that really concerns us because we're not the ones who you know our our, our dialogues are with the developers. Right. Um, that's who we work for. That's who hires us. And so you know, it's important. I think as a local, it's 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 easy for localization professionals to get too invested in the projects they're working on. At the end of the day, it's not your it's not your brainchild. It's the brainchild of the producer and the director and and the creative team. And this is not to disparage localization professionals because we're localization professionals. But right. you know, having originated my own content and having localized content, I know instinctively what the differences and what the difficulties are that go into each one of those things. And you know, I it's it's important not to get overly invested. Either so basically, in that's exactly why we started uh, writing the Yoga Attack series. Yes. Because we knew yeah. that um, the localization work is, you know, it's it's a, uh, is we are just basically working for somebody else contents, and then so so for to, for in order to keep our mental health, yeah, we wanted to create our own content. Yeah. And then we, and then it had, that's how we, that's how we publish our own books. Yeah, it really helped to have an yes, outlet. Yes, to, to balance. Yeah. Yeah. 
It did. It really helped to have our own creative outlet. That because if somebody criticizes like our books, if somebody criticizes Pure Invention, I do take that personally. You know, that's, the, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. that's because that's something I wrote. And that's something that's yeah. my my name is on it as on the cover. Yeah, it's like, I will fight you. Exactly. Well, yeah. it's not even that I want to. Fight. I actually really appreciate criticism. I appreciate constructive criticism. So that you oh, know, exactly. so that, that we can you know the war make it you know, make yes. it makes things better. Yes, yeah. but quite often like fan criticisms of of localizations are not based in the objective reality of how localization is done or what localization is. So we sure. tend not to get involved in that kind of thing. No. I think I think it's something like like when Dragon Quest 4 came out um because Dragon Quest 4 when it was Dragon Warrior 4 it has it has a special place in a lot of fans hearts and when the DS version of 4 came out it was very very different. Uh, um, yeah. it's not and 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 I think sometimes fans don't always vocalize that that just because it's different, they might not like a localization choice. That doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean the writing is bad. But I see I see both sides. Just like some people love you know love the new uh, uh the new accents in four, and some people prefer the old style that introduced sure. them to RPGs and all that. So sure, like, sure, yeah, yeah. It's like I see I see both sides. Both sides have their points. So like yeah, yeah. definitely. Well, I mean you know, what would, you know I'm not here to 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 disparage anybody's feelings. You know if somebody oh, sure. feels if somebody feels like they like a localization, like one style of doing it better than another, I, that's a complete personal preference. But, you know, a lot of times our hands are tied. You right. know, the, 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 the director says they want to go this way. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the head of localization wants to go that way. You know, we are there to serve yeah. the people who make the game. Gameness. That is who our, you know, in the end, our responsibility is to. So, you know, if people have problems, they should bring it up to the, the they should bring it up to the publisher. They should bring it up to the, you know, the people actually in, who have the decision-making authority, yes. you know, the creative decision-making authority, because it's, the localizers are often the easiest targets of, you know, scorn and things like that, because they're, you know, they're foreign people. And, you know, and, and if you're a foreign critic, you can I probably find them more easily. You can communicate with them more easily, or think you can communicate with them more easily. Mm -hmm. So it's like you know, we we you, you, we're kind of the first line. You know, of, <laughs> I don't know of defense because I'm not defending these titles, but you know, we're we're often low low professionals are often the first to take heat when right. people don't like something about a game. Period. You right. Know? And so. you actually answered the other question I had. So Liam, it's all you. All right. <laughs> all right. Moving on to uh, uh, to talk a little bit more about uh, Alt Japan. So uh, you're a small business with a very successful one at that. Um, 18 years and counting with numerous clients and credits. Uh, have you achieved the goals you originally sought out when you were creating the company? Well, the, the goal was to let us do whatever we wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, we didn't found all Japan as like a specific. It was a localization company, but that's because localization was paying the bills at the time. You know, like uh, founding a company is a platform to allow you to explore different business. Yes, and models. then tax, <laughs> and also for tax. You know, I mean, just for tax purposes, there's all sorts of like kind of logistical things involved there too. You know, for paying yourself and for like expensing things and being able to hire people. And then also, it's a credit. It's a credit credential. It's a credential. Yeah. So yes. I think the answer is yes. It's let us do what we wanted to do. And we've deliberately kept Alt Japan kind of small and boutique because, you know, when a company gets, I don't think there's any way to really scale localization and automate it. Yeah, at the beginning, of course, just, just like everybody else, we constantly question ourselves. You know, there are, you know, because there are so many definitions of what the big company is. Is it 
big assets? Is that make the big company or making a large number of employees? Is that make a big company or you know making a big profit? Um, is that a big big company? And we constantly questions ourselves, and then eventually we um, decided to to keep. A company small, basically, two of us. Agile. Agile. <laughs> exactly. So that it, we can evolve. Yes. And it's let us that, it's, it, oh, yeah, it's let us go through so many iterations of because it's a fact that you know we, we, we knew that because we are we are the two we, we are just only two people. So we couldn't we can't head to head to the agency. So that means you know we cannot um against say the price, for example. You know, now then there are like a dollar shop everywhere and then you know it's like okay but you know if if even if it's a you know if, even if you have a one dollar shop is uh, successful but then 90 99 cents shop comes, comes out, out yeah. you know that kind of thing <laughs> that's, that's a, yeah, yeah that's a losing work. game so um so so we basically we constantly question ourselves and read it out and then what would you know the what would make us um to to get close to what the big company is and then also the size is small. How can we offer quality? How can we offer, yeah. you know, services? And just, you know, that's what we came up So, with. and then, yeah, to, to, to pick and choose. Mm -hmm. And then the, the big titles. I imagine it's also good to be able to kind of keep your name attached to something. Like, uh, like for example, if you work for Treehouse, you're working on Mario and Zelda, but but your name just kind of gets faded into this giant this giant sure. staff. But sure. Well, I mean, you know, it depends on the company too. You know, Nintendo is a very, we think people like to think of Nintendo as a very cutting edge company and they do make, they are a tech company, but they're a very traditional company. That's like a salary man culture there. Um, it, it always has been, always will be a very Kyoto kind of culture. And that's just how it is. Other companies are more scrappy, you know, um, especially if you're talking like indies and like startups and things like that. I mean, Nintendo has been in business for what, a hundred and how many years? hundred and thirty. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's a traditional, like you go in there, like you are becoming, you become Nintendo, you become part of Nintendo. It's not like that's a place for you to shine as a individual. If you want to shine as an individual, you go somewhere else. I mean, it's just, and it's, there's pluses and minuses to every situation. You have to choose what you do for yourself. Right. So, uh, so if someone was interested in getting into translation, localization, whatnot, what advice would you give? Uh, what's something that you wish you would have known? If you when you were starting out, God, the field has changed so much. I mean, I would I would advise anybody getting into game localization to also keep in mind that those same skills can work in fields that are not necessarily game related, but a lot easier to get work in and probably pay higher too. You know, like, there's okay. no shame to doing patent translation or doing technical translation, or you don't have to, you know, yoke your faked games. You can leave game localization and you can come back to it like there's no there's no game localization police who are going to bar your entry back in um don't be don't be you know shocked if your progress is not a straight line if it's two steps forward and one back um it's just how it goes it's good to know yeah why are you getting into localization <laughs> i I'm busy enough as it is. I don't. I don't. I'm. I'm one of those people. I don't. I don't get to. I don't get to play games anymore. <laughs> so I just get to work, and then I get to clean the house, and then I get oh, to well, wake, nice. wake up and work some more, then clean the house again. Well, on that note, Hiroko and I actually have to get back to work. So. Um, oh, do you? Oh, okay. yes. We're gonna actually have to run, but because uh, it's okay, been an hour well, and a half. Oh. Okay, well, we had we had a bunch of questions on your on your attack series and oh geez, can we do a, a follow-up? Seriously, you can 
if you if you like some time, you're more than welcome to come back and talk about all this great stuff. I know I know I want to. No, 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 actually, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. You convinced me. <laughs> what do you what, what questions do you have if you have if you want to go down the list? All right. Um, okay. Uh oh shoot, shoot, lost my place. Uh Liam, if you wanted to go first, or would you like to would you like to talk about the the attack books and and pure invention and having your robot co- collection on display at the Kennedy oh, man, Center? Geez. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff. Why don't we focus on You've done so much? Books. So it's hard. Books. It's, it's, it's hard on to narrow books. just one thing. <laughs> what would you like to know about the attack series? Oh goodness, so much. I, I mean, I mean, really, just how. Uh, just how you decided to write your own books uh, and just like your love, your love of monsters, ghosts, outlaws, the culture, and just everything that went into it. Hiroko's love of yoga. I always wanted yes. to do yoga because um, all the Japanese stuff, products that take cars, manga, and game software, toys, anything, sushi, and concept of geisha. I mean, all the Japanese stuff and came out Japan to abroad. But yokai. It was kind of untapped. Yeah. But the yo- yeah, at the time. But the yokai was a very popular subject in Japan. Um, I mean, of course, the depth of knowledge varies by people. But if you talk to kids or, you know, talk to old people, whatever, but they, everybody knows what yokai is. So, and it's fun. <laughs> so I wanted to introduce um, the yokai, Japanese yokai, to, to, to abroad. Yeah. And like, I love Japanese monsters, but like, I was more into like Godzilla. You know, and Hiroko's like, well, if you like Godzilla and stuff like that, there's this whole other world genre, genre <laughs> world of traditional Japanese monsters called yokai. And she was really my guide into that. And she and I were just, you know, this is years back, like right after we first moved to Japan, like 2003, because then we could go to like art exhibitions and, you know, there's much more books on that here. And like, we would look over these beautiful art books. And I remember saying to her, I'm like, God, we should try to do a guidebook in English. And uh, we were introduced through a mutual friend to somebody at Kodak. International, and one thing led to another. We got a, we got a, you know, our proposal went through, and and the book did really well for them. And so, you know, they greenlit a sequel, and, yeah. and then another yeah. sequel. So we wanted to, but see, we wanted to make something fun, but at the same time, we wanted to, um, we call it edutainment, the education plus entertainment. Right, right. <laughs> so that's what I'm basically your uh, attack series, attack series is all about. Um, it's fun to read, but in the end, you learn something about Japanese culture and history. Um, yeah. And- yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's basically it. It's it's just, and I'm pretty sure Yokai Attack was the first English language guidebook on that topic. Yes. And it, it, oh, nice. it was, well, we were really happy to hear the word Yokai that people start after that book came out, like people started citing it in like development teams and stuff like oh we can just call this character a yokai and uh, before that the, the whole bunch of uh, the translations out there just monsters yeah ghouls well, um actually what? i'm just richard actually features into this because richard was working at level five and i remember richard telling me that when they were working on when they're developing yokai watch there was a big discussion ah, that's right. there was a big discussion in the company what the hell are we going to call this game and then yokai attack came up like, well, there's a book with this in English. Oh, okay, we can call it Yoke. They ended up putting a hyphen in it, I think, to yeah. kind of make it, to differentiate it, make it their own. But actually, right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm looking at the, on the wall, there's a, <laughs> there's a letter and an illustration from the director of, of Yokai Watch, you know, thanking us for, I guess Richard had given him a copy of the book or something like that. 
and he gave us a copy of the game. But that's uh, fantastic. Yeah, that's really cool. Like we made the books to kind of help Japanese people and Western people, you know, use it as a reference because every we didn't make up anything in Yokai Attack. It's all based on research, like or what conventional wisdom is about all of these different yokai monsters and you know we carried that through to ninja attack we carried it through to yurei attack which is the japanese ghost survival guide so those books are intended as as kind of guides reference guides for anybody <laughs> yeah. who wants to so but when we wrote it obviously that our target in our mind our target audience is you know is adult you know high teenagers and older but when mm -hmm. when the books published yokai attack got published <laughs> for some reason just Children, yeah, kids, kids loved it. God, loved it. We got so many letters from like mothers and fathers saying, thanking us. It's like, oh my gosh, I want you to, to my daughters and never read a book, but then finally she started, you know, reading and reading your book. Yeah, and I'm like, like God, <laughs> I'm like, is this okay? There's like monsters ripping people limb from limb. These rips, fairy pretty rough too. So. Kids love, yeah, book. kids love that book. I love that. Yeah. And it's had it's had such a long a long life to it too. Because yeah, I is. because ever since it's come out, it's I've I've constantly seen it pop up here here and there, just like somebody's <laughs> reading it. I see it on someone's bookshelf. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that yoga attack box I mean, in two thousand eight. It's been in print for almost yeah, or fifteen years now. So it's mm -hmm. it's it's going on. It's I no signs of going out. I mean, Tuttle after Kodansha International went into business, Tuttle picked it up and um yeah, it's just been it's yeah, been upgraded actually there's a, new, there's a new updated version of yokai attack that features amabie the yokai who rose to fame during the covid 19 epidemic so there's a new edition of yokai attack that should be pretty widely available in the next few months uh oh, there's still some older editions as it's selling out it's it's always great to see a project that is clearly a labor of love become a huge hit and be embraced by so many people. So that's that's Cute. that's why that's why creative folks like us do what we do. Yes. No, I mean, it's all yeah. about, you know, kind of trying to affect the dialogue, trying to affect the conversation. It's, it's it is, of course, everybody wants to have a massive hit, you know, so you can retire to your like castle, you know, uh, everybody wants an empire like Marie Kondo or something. But, you know, we. <laughs> Yeah. Are, uh, <laughs> the life-changing magic of Japanese monsters. Um, we're just really happy to see it become a kind of de facto standard reference. But then we moved, uh, we uh, we raised our uh, bar. bar yeah. And then uh, that was 2016? Ah, uh, Japan Demonium. Illustrated. Yeah, so we translated, like, we found these, like, 1770s vintage yokai encyclopedias. Like, they're very widely known among folklorists in Japan, but they're not really well known abroad. And we found beautiful copies of the Smithsonian Museum in uh, Washington, D.C., and licensed them and found a publisher and published a translation of these guidebooks that are basically the foundation for how everybody in Japan sees yokai today. And that book was published under the title Japan Demonium Illustrated, the Yokai Encyclopedias of Toriyama Sekien. And it came out 2016 from Dover. Yeah, totally. And uh, it's, that's the only, uh, that was tough. That's like translating 17. So that was, you know, we, we kind of brought our localization skills to bear on this pop culture from the 1700s. That was our modus operandi there. Yeah. So the first, uh, the first Matt said that, you know, we should translate <laughs> into English, and I knew, I knew, you know what, you know what kind of. Uh, it was just. The, it was first. I thought that was the craziest idea because the Jack. I'm like, well, I know in how in how much English got changed, but Japanese. Yeah. Got changed so much. Yeah, it's almost a different language. <laughs> 
<laughs> and also the, all the references, like it made me realize translating that because like it was written for like a really witty and sophisticated Edo as Tokyo yes. was known back then audience. And it made me realize 200 years from now, people are going to look back on Twitter or and like Reddit and not have a clue what we're talking about because we're referencing some like headline or we're referencing some kind of meme that's been long forgotten because Japanimonium Illustrated is basically a book of memes, like Edo era memes, oh, like wow. stuff. <laughs> Stuff that cracked people up in, in Tokyo Edo in, in 1780 is basically what it yeah. is. Like, And if you said any of these stories to anybody on the street in Edo back then, they'd know that you were probably referring to X, Y, and Z. But like, we really had that was, that was the tough part about that. that was like, well, okay, what are they really talking about here? It's obviously, you know, not like often the surface level was, was just the surface. And like it was referencing something completely different beneath that. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun to do. And uh, tough, tough, but, fun. Fun. but satisfying. Satisfying. Awesome. Satisfying. Excellent. Well, uh, is there anything else that you're working on now that you'd like to promote? Well, there's there's pure invention. The uh, <laughs> pure invention, uh, how Japan made the modern world, uh, which is all about how it's basically, like I said, a, a, a modern a history of our weird times told through the lens of Japanese pop culture, because so many of the trends and things that, that we take for granted today actually have their roots in uh, Japan, post-war Japan, like, and and post-bubble Japan, you know, like the way that we are all immersed in like portable devices that let us shut out the world, like Japan invented that with the Walkman, you know, the way we all think that we're the center of entertainment, uh, center, of, center of the world on Instagram. Well, like the karaoke machine was the first machine that let everybody think that they were the, you know, a star for a moment, uh, user-generated content and all of that. All of these things that are such a fabric of modern life today, like the tools that and the groundwork for them was laid in Japan. And, and a lot of people don't realize that. Um, so I wanted to write a book that was kind of where I was doing this. I, it's a detective story. I'm actually tracking down the very first karaoke machine, the very first oh, Hello nice. Kitty product, the very first post-war toy, the very first, you know, uh, I interviewed uh, Masayuki Uemura, the engineer who made the Famicom. Like I tracked him down and we had a really fun conversation in Kyoto. Um, so it's a kind of cultural detective story telling the stories of a lot of these products that changed your life, but maybe you didn't know how they came to be. So it's pure invention available at finer bookstores everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. Awesome. That's the pitch. Okay. All right. Uh, you know, Dwayne, thanks you for have... having us. We really, yeah. we really appreciated this. I'm yeah. sorry I couldn't talk longer, but you know, duty calls. Well, if you want to, if you want to come back and just have fun and just talk about localization stuff, or just talk sure. about your interest and things and things that you enjoy, I think I think Liam would love to have you back anytime. Yeah, absolutely. No, let's let's make it let's make it happen sometime. That's it for this episode of Slime Time. We do want to thank Matt and Hiroko for joining, and thank thank you everyone who's who's tuning in and listening to, to this. This was uh, this was something that I think we wanted to do for a while, and it was definitely a blast. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So we don't use Patreon. We're just longtime fans who want to speak about the game series we know and love. If you have money you'd like to donate, consider sliding on over to the Dragon's Den and click on support this site. Woodus has owned and maintained the Dragon's Den DQ fan site for over 20 years and would appreciate any donation, or you can use his Amazon affiliate links to make any purchases, and a small fraction of the sale will go to support the Dragon's Den. For any questions or comments or to advertise with us, please reach out at slimetimepodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions or comments for us, you can also find us on Twitter or Instagram at DQ Slime Time. Um, specifically, the uh, Instagram, I post a lot of um, uh, photos from uh, my time in Japan. 
Uh, so go check that out. It's, uh, you'll see some photos you won't see anywhere on, on the Twitter account. Uh, consider joining in tons of Dragon Quest discussions on the uh, Dragon's Den forums, one of the last remaining DQ forums still around. Uh, you can find it at buddhist.com slash forums. Um, and uh, come out, come hang out with uh, us and tons of other rabid Dragon Quest fans at the Dragon's Den Discord server. We'd like to thank everyone who made this uh, podcast possible, including Woodus for support of the series and this podcast and keeping the Dragon's Den lights on for decades. Uh, uh, thanks very much to um, Amanda Laprie uh, from the Descendants of Erdrick for allowing us to use their music for our podcast. The Descendants of, Dr- of Erdrick is a video game tribute band from Austin, Texas, just two and a half hours away from me. Uh, uh, check them and their most recent album advent at descendants of erdrick.com or on twitter at d of erdrick and and check out amanda laprie on twitch and as and the most important thing of course thanks very much to me for my amazing art artwork for this cover for, uh for the podcast you can check out more of my artwork on on instagram at Dwayne art that's d-w-a-i-n-e-a-r-t i'm cursed with a name nobody can spell or or you can check out my temporary w- website at dwaynebullockart.bigcartel.com if you're looking for more dragon quest slime time check out our earlier episodes on the dragon's den anchor fm itunes spotify youtube and even more bye everyone dragon quest slime time sliming off <laughs>